Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Smith Sense Podcast with Matt Smith. I am not Matt Smith. My name is Anthony Bruno, and I have the pleasure of interviewing Matt about various topics of interest to entrepreneurs and business leaders struggling with the same challenges that Matt has faced and is facing as he continues to operate daily as a working entrepreneur himself. This week, we explore the risks and opportunities for entrepreneurs in a post-COVID era, or more specifically, the near-term post-quarantine era, as the stay-at-home orders begin to lift. We are entering what is being called the new normal, and while we obviously have no certainty over what that means exactly, Matt does have some very interesting thoughts on what it will likely mean in sort of a macroeconomic way, and he has some very specific questions that entrepreneurs should ask themselves as they prepare for this world where expectations around supply and demand are likely to look much different for the foreseeable future. Shocks to supply and demand, shrinking consumer confidence, a shift to hyperlocalism, these are all things that we talk about as we look for how businesses can sort of innovate and pivot in new, challenging, and maybe even exciting ways in your future. So with that, let's get right into it. Thanks for listening. And now here is Matt. Matt, good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, uh, you know, I'm getting there. I'm getting better, actually. It's been an interesting, obviously, a few weeks for everyone. One of the questions I wanted to ask you today was just, you know, what we've all been kind of dealing with this pandemic here for a while. We've all been kind of focused on how to, you know, address some of the more immediate changes and challenges that have come up and whatnot. But as we're recording this, the conversation seems to be shifting a little bit to, you know, the end of the tunnel, the light at the end of the tunnel, the coming out of this phase and whatnot. I keep on reading the same phrase over and over again that I wanted to talk about a little bit was like, when things get back to normal. And I kind of wonder like, what does normal mean, particularly as businesses, you know, as people running businesses, starting businesses and whatnot, how do they think about what that new normal might be? Is it going to be like it was before or is it fundamentally forever altered? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, there's, there's two parts to it. One is, well, is our approach to disease going to be the same in general? You know, are we going to be like Hong Kong and the flu season, everyone wearing masks all the time? You know, are we going to be taking, everybody taking more tests more frequently to make sure we're not carriers of the flu or whatever? That to me doesn't seem like that goes back to normal for a long time, that there's going to be some things that are affected by that, you know, kind of like the 9-11 effect with, you know, TSA. There's going to be something that changes because of that. I don't know. And it's hard to say exactly what. What's the taking your shoes off at the airport of this? Is I guess that's a great way of framing the question. Yeah. I mean, I mean, is it that you have a, you have a health passport to work? I mean, there is it going to be a new normal. It's going to be, I think, more like 9-11 was the impact on the way we did basic things. That's going to happen here. On the economy side, which I think is a much greater concern to me, is um, I don't think that we go back to where we were before either. The pandemic is just a catalyst for causing changes that were really sort of pent up in the system anyway. We laid off a couple of people in our organization. Lots of people have laid off people. Some of those are businesses. Many of those businesses will never open again. But a good like mental model or sort of way to test it to see how what, what normal looks like essentially is to ask yourself if you laid off someone recently or if you know of a big company that laid off people recently, if this pandemic thing were resolved tomorrow, I mean, just gone, would you hire back all of those people you let go? Right. And the answer is no. Unlikely. Yeah. No, you and some, but definitely not all of them. We had a conversation about this just ourselves the other day too, but the same is applied to individuals. That's right. And I want to bring that up because- People listening are think have customers, and those customers will be having the same types of thoughts that I think should be kept in mind. You know, we've all probably cut back on unnecessary spending to more bolster our personal balance sheets. funds and personal balance sheets and things like this. Do I suddenly start like, saying, "Okay, everything's fine. I'm going to start spending willy nilly again," or am I going to retain that 
And for how long do I retain it? Is that a forever thing? Or is that just like a couple of years until I feel comfortable again? Just, there's a lot of people out there that exercise for six months and then go back to the TV. You know what I'm saying? So that's what I'm trying to get at. Fear changes things a lot more than the desires to like for fitness, for instance, you know what I mean? Like the, like now if you have a heart attack and you are really worried that you will die, you know, then those people often, I mean, not all the time, but when they get on an exercise regime, they really do change their life because of it, because it, fear drives them. And I think when you look at like our grandparents who, uh, you know, were alive during a portion of the great depression, they kept with them for their entire life, this thriftiness that is, was always hard for everyone else to understand you know, you have a can of green beans and they'd keep the can. And you'd be like, what does the can for? Like, will you ever need this can? And yeah, they thought there's something, you know, you recycle it or something, you, you wouldn't just throw it away. You know, you'd reuse things. So those attitudes, they can stick for a long, long time. And of course, how strong those attitudes are depend upon how bad all of this gets. But I think you have to look at, to think about how bad things can get or not, or, and where the opportunities might be in the future. A good strategy for doing that is trying to understand trends. Yeah, you mentioned trends earlier, and you said there were a couple of things that even before all this that were worth noting. Can you maybe, why don't we start there? Demographic trends are big. So like the baby boomer population is, you know, a huge population. It's aging and it is, uh, you know, starting to draw on its capital to support its retirement rather than being the key savers in the economy. Their consumption is also decreasing dramatically anyway. So baby boomer consumption was already going down. You know, they were downsizing homes, stuff like that. You know, that was already one trend. And there's demographic trends all over the place. You can talk about the millennial trend. I mean, but demographic trends are big and affect lots of things for a long period of time. Globalization is another one. With more open borders and free trade of goods and services, you have lots of specialization that occurs. You know, have lots of efficiencies and you have leads to lower prices. That's a big trend that was there. And I'll just name a couple of other ones real quick. There's trend toward financialization, which is to turn, you know, everything into a financial product of one form or another. There is, you know, lower interest rates where, you know, the cost of borrowing money gets cheaper and cheaper. And this lasted for over 30 years so far, where interest rates have just gone down and down and down further than anyone could have imagined. The trend toward retail to be e-commerce based primarily versus, you know, in-store. I mean, U.S. has more retail square footage per person than anywhere else in the world, where something like five times as much retail square footage per person as you have in France. There's a lot of retail space and there's this trend toward e-commerce. What does this mean? And then just in general, consumer attitudes and preferences, what we're, like what we're talking about. I mean, my grandma, George, in the old days, like you called your grandma's by your grandfather's name. Isn't that weird? Well, or if you're first generation, you call them by their native language uh, terms. I had one for Swedish and one for Italian and it kept things honest. Hmm, that's a good way to differentiate. So her attitudes about spending and consumption were just, you know, they were big and they maintained throughout her life. My kids and their their attitudes towards spending on like digital assets like clothing and video games, you know? I mean, right. it's like custom skins. Exactly. So, so anyways, there are these trends these and these preferences, uh, the preferences towards sustainability of products that consumers have had. That's been a huge trend. You have all of these trends. They exist always within every economy they're big trends and they're very hard to move. It's like they have a weight and gravity of their own. So if you want to see what the future looks like, you essentially take some of these trends and you put them on a line stretching out. Okay. A timeline? Yeah. Just okay. like I'm, visually, I imagine, like I see this long line, you know, spanning off into the future and the future is pretty dark. I can't see over there, but I can see a line going. Now, if you imagine something like globalization and, you know, if globalization is a trend, well, 
take 10 years down the road. What does it look like when there's more globalization? Look ahead even further and just imagine. And then it starts to give you a little clarity about what the future might look like just by following one trend. Now you layer onto it other trends that also might affect it and might bend it a little bit one way or another. Globalization is a big trend. You have the demographic shift is a big trend and you have the e-commerce thing is a big trend. And what does that give you? That gives you, you know, those, you can see how those trends together combine to give us a lot of what we have today, you know, which are, let's say, pre-pandemic, where all the growth in retail was happening in e-commerce. There are lots of new specialty brands that occurred because of the efficiency of these supply chains and being able to quickly create new brands, new products, and have them manufactured overseas and delivered here, you know, a very quick, efficient supply chain, low cost. That's what's kind of made our consumer economy what it is, is the kind of those three things together and low interest rates to finance it and other things. So so you have these trends going in the future, and then you have, they get overextended. A trend always gets overextended. And then when you have a catalyst like this, it can cause it to shift to adjust in a big way. Could you quickly explain when you say overextended? Do you mean just unbalanced maybe? I'm I'm trying to get an understanding. Unbalanced, exactly, yeah. You know, if you're driving on an icy road and the car starts to lose traction a little bit, and then you try and correct and you overcorrect, and that's what causes the car to spin out of control. yeah. You've relied too much on one thing, expecting it to stay the same, and then when it adjusts, as you say, there's more of a spin out than a than a, just a change in direction. Yeah, and it's easy to see this when you think about finance because you can see all these trends that as they occur. You could look at the housing market, right, mm-hmm. where it just went so far one way, and like it has a momentum of its own, and everyone knows it's expensive now. It gets to a point where everyone goes, "Wow, this is expensive." And then when everyone sees it expensive and they still see it continuing, then they start coming up with explanations as to why. Maybe it is that expensive. Maybe it does make sense, you know, because the trend seems so powerful. You start to justify the unbalance, and then the unbalance becomes normal rather than, I don't know, a warning sign or whatever it should exactly. be. Exactly. And that's the power of trends is that because they surprise us because they last so long that then we start to try and explain them away. And then, you know, at some point they break or they bend in some way. And like I said, interest rates is a big one. You know, no one thinks interest rates can go so low and they just keep getting lower and we have negative interest rates. And if you want to know the future, the best guide you have is you have these trends to kind of come up with and see how they might extend out over time. So one of the biggest trends that I think is so substantially affected right now because of all this is globalization. So globalization had been as extended as far as it could. It's like a rubber band that gets pulled. And now this catalyst is causing it to snap back. And like just like it may have been irrationally extended, you know, free trade to the detriment of lots of people, maybe. We had cheap goods, I guess, and so it made it worthwhile for a while. Now it's coming back, and it's going to come back in an irrational way, I think. Globalization is going to shrink and be focused, uh, extended back to localization. So the trend will be localization, I think, for a long time in the future. And localization, you're saying in terms of just sourcing, what, everything? Everything. I mean, it's source of everything, but it's also, to a certain extent, that seems to jive against this idea that the smaller, independent, local store will somehow survive when it's really probably going to be more like these big chains. It will. You actually shared with me this article in The Economist, which I thought was, you know, talked about the future and, you know, uh, three big possibilities or likely possibilities that will come out of this. And one of the big ones is that small companies will fail and big companies will prevail. I mean, and there's a lot of reason for that, you know, because consumers might trust a big company because they know it. And if you're worried about risk, you might go with what's safer. They also have large balance sheets where a small business has less than 30 days of cash. So they have large balance sheets and, you know, they get bailed out directly by the government where the treasury secretary gives them money, whereas everyone else has to fill all these forms and wait in line at Wells Fargo. So, you know, big companies do come out of that ahead. However, while the company could be a global company, the manufacturing of the products is not going to be global on the same scale. 
They're not going to have these very intricate, complex supply chains that have very little redundancy that are so susceptible to failure. And we haven't yet experienced the failure yet that is going to be caused by these supply chains breakdown. But if you look further into the supply chain, you can see many examples of where it's happening. They're running out of storage facility at the ports of entry for container ships. Every retail store is closed. So all of the stuff that was in the supply chain production line is hitting the shores and it's stuck there. And so the importers aren't picking it up because they can't do anything with it. So it just is piling up there. Now, some of those things will, you know, maybe it'll be, it can be used in the future. Some of those are seasonal things, you know, that so they'll be gone. They'll be wasted essentially because there's a demand shock. So there's this demand shock and we're experiencing the pains of the demand shock first. One of the only bright spots in terms of retail in the country where, where sales have gone up is around grocery and food items and stuff like that. Like their sales have gone way up. On the supply side of that, farmers are going bankrupt, bankrupt. Little farmers are going bankrupt because the connection between them and the retail shelf, there's so much disconnection there that they can't actually get their product through the pipeline to markets. And so it's rotting on the vine. Right. It, it's changed. And, and also a large number of their typical buyers are not buying the restaurants, the hotels, you know, like the smaller ones tended to service restaurants more than they would service large grocery chains and things like that. So they had to adjust and that takes time and perishable goods and time don't go together very well and so on and so on. So then the, some of the suppliers get wiped out and end up going off the market. You know, as demand goes up or as the market sort of adjusts, their demand sort of improves to some degree. And then these supplies are not available in the same way that they were. Then you have a supply shock. And so basically, the more complicated, the more complex the web essentially that brings products to market, the more fragile it is, the more likely it is to break. And we're going to see huge consequences with that over time. I mean, do you know that it wasn't that long ago that almost all the pharmaceuticals used by, consumed by Americans were produced in Puerto Rico? They're all in Puerto Rico. But then it was all tax incentives essentially drove the pharmaceutical companies to be there. And then those tax incentives expired and then they moved elsewhere. So now we're going to have a shortage of basic pharmaceuticals that we're used to having because of supply chain complexity and supply chain breakdowns, you know, and bringing that back is going to be difficult. These companies are going to make moves that are going to rebuild their supply chains more locally. Now, they're not say that they're not going to be, they're not going to have some Asian manufacturing or anything like that still. It's just that it's going to be more simple. It's going to be more redundant and it's going to be closer within their control. And that's what I wanted to get at. So like, because you, you mentioned two things, right? You mentioned globalization to more local, but you also mentioned a complex web. Does that web then become, by virtue of becoming more local, also become more simplified or is it simply a complex local web instead? It definitely becomes more simple. And actually, the reason it becomes more local is because of a desire to make it more simple. Okay. So and I guess to stretch probably too far, the analogy of the uh, driving onto the icy road, what you mentioned was this, you know, the supply chain disruptions being the car spinning back and forth and overcompensating for the spin. What we're saying is we're not only getting, you know, wanting to get to a less icy road, but maybe the car goes from an SUV to like a low front wheel drive vehicle or something like that. It, again, I'm stretching it. Right. Or you decide to take the train. <laughs> okay. Even better. Here's one interesting thing is when I've been thinking a lot about, you know, food lately. So I've been th trying to think as some of my entrepreneur friends have been asking like, well, okay, so what are the opportunities? If you look ahead, like what are the real opportunities? I was and, just about to get into that. So that's perfect. So I think the opportunities are still very difficult to predict and the risks are still, it's still difficult to fully grasp the risk. So that this trend following approach, like following these trends out into the future, imagining the effect of, they have on each other as they intersect in the future, that helps you understand both the problems that may come and that you should protect yourself from, but it also helps you understand what the opportunities may be and then how to, you know, how to take advantage of them. 
I'll say traditionally, and they talk about this in that Economist article, it's just one sentence in there, but it's, it's something that I think a lot of people don't understand is that the role that small businesses often serve in a market is that they are the nimble players that move very quickly and, and kind of solve a lot of the complexities at the edges of a market. Like, so there are these huge companies that do the import and export, and then there are these huge conglomerates that are the huge manufacturing facilities in China that might be producing it. And big companies like Apple that might be, that are having it produced and selling it here in the US. Within that supply chain, there are lots of small providers, whether they be providing small components to the Foxconn factory in China, or that they handle the logistics details of actually getting it off the boat and delivered into, you know, regional hubs. And those are not the, usually these huge companies that do all of it. It's actually like these little players because they're smaller companies that are able to focus on specific, I'm going to call them small problems in terms of size, but not necessarily impact, right? But like they handle this part of it for you. They handle like going back to your ports with stuff building up. Just maybe there's an app that lets you, you know, find what you need within those or something and you can, and you can more easily get stuff if you need to as, as on the other side. I'll use an example that explains it, I think a little bit even better than that. So when I lived in Argentina and I wanted a car, it was very expensive to buy a car there. My wife could not drive a, a manual transmission, so I had to get an automatic. So I, this is to get the car, I flew to the US, bought a car, put it on a boat, and had it shipped to me and imported like a tourist car basically into Argentina. So getting it on the boat and getting it to port was easy. The only way I could get the car though into my possession is I had to hire a fixer. Like it was the only way. So it's just a guy who basically would go around and find it and, you know, and maybe, I don't know how he did it exactly. I know it wasn't cheap, but Entrepreneurs end up are like these fixers, and they can build standard enterprises as these fixers within an economy. So that's the role that, that entrepreneurs typically focus on to start with, and then you can build something more significant from that. You know, you see basically this place where the market isn't functioning properly. It's hard. You have to be quick and nimble to, to solve it. And an entrepreneur is the person who can step in and do that. And then they can build something bigger beyond that. And this is an environment that's ripe for that, clearly. I mean, and I read something else, different article that I didn't uh, share with you. And I can't remember now what it was, but it was saying like, you know, this is when, you know, entrepreneurs thrive. They see the problem. They have an innovation. They act on it. Not all of them work, but those that do have an outsized opportunity going forward. But it's just a matter of, and I wrote this down as you were talking, where to look and when to act. There's two ideas that seemed obvious to me so far in this. And one is, you know, I, masks were going to become a thing and it was going to become a fashion accessory. Ultimately, you'd have high-end versions of it. You'd have Louis Vuitton will be making more money from the sale of high-end masks than they will from purses. And there's lots of opportunity for people to do that, to get into that business if you want to. So like, because every season, you have to imagine this will be happening. So that's one idea. I'm not saying it's a great idea, but I am saying that I'm, I'm certain that'll be a multi-billion dollar business, actually. Now, whether you could be a small player there, I don't know. Now, the other thing that I've been thinking about is more locally. If I believe in this idea of localization over globalization, then what does it really mean? And, and for that, you have to look in your own town. You have to really look very close to understand and start to think about those opportunities. So basically, I think that in general, it's going to be solving more specific problems that were usually solved in inexpensive and complex ways because you had this complicated web that worked pretty well, but it's no longer going to. So you think about what would happen today if your washer and dryer broke, you know? Can you get somebody to come to your house and fix it right now? You can't simply go buy a new one, even. That kind of problem is going to exist. And the way that people solve it, which a lot of ways it's been done traditionally, is that people would actually often just get a replacement. You know, if they, oh, I've had this thing for 15 years, let's just get a new one. Like that kind of idea is going to be more expensive probably if the supply chain is less efficient. You know, if these things aren't being manufactured, you know, in sweatshops in Asia, it's going to be harder for those things to buy new ones all the time. I think where you're going with this is 
a shift towards more of a fixing, I guess a repair than a replace culture. Cultural is a much stronger force than anything else, right? Like we were very much a replaceable culture, but to get to more of the repair culture, I think that's interesting. Well, and that has to do also if you believe in savings is more, you know, that I, maybe we shouldn't spend so much, you know, like if you're not sure that the future is going to be, your income is going to be higher in the future than it was last year, which, you know, Americans for a long time now have believed that they're, they're going to make more money next year than they made last year. And people might start to doubt that if this continues for much longer. So I think there is that repair versus replace change. And also more locally, think about the things you buy all the time are food. So I've been thinking a lot about food and, and I never really thought that much about food, but food is one of the hardest things with supply chains because of its perishable quality. One of the interesting things I've, I've discovered in my study of it so far and, and talking with a, a local rancher here in Colorado is that strangely enough, the things that are, are considered higher end, like uh, you know organic products and like grass-fed beef, for instance, is actually way more resilient than the highly efficient, like non-grass-fed feedlot, you know, kind of cattle. Cattle are, um, who are not pasture grown or whatever, you know, most of their food actually apparently is these soy cakes, which is like this byproduct of producing soybean oil, which the U.S. produces in great quantity and exports like 70% of it. But if we are exporting 70% of that, then we aren't producing the byproduct of it, the food that the cows need, and the cows are located in places that there's no natural source of food whatsoever. You got to shift what you're feeding these 90 million cattle that are in the US, or they're going to starve. They need this us to ship out tons of soybean oil, or else we can't, which means we have to plant soybeans, which means we need to have our the workers you know, come from South America that we always bring in, or, or Central America every year, which we can't do that now either. So I mean, there's all these complicated pieces to it versus my friend who produces grass-fed beef here in Colorado says, man, we're not running short of grass here. Like, right. There's plenty of grass. We're fine. And so strangely enough, it seems like the cheapest forms of food are going to prove to be very expensive in this supply chain restructuring. Yeah. I think what you're saying is that what made them cheap are now going to make them expensive. Very expensive. Because of the supply chain disruption. The, the, the yes. source of their inexpensiveness, once removed, becomes the source of their expensiveness. Just one example with the beef, I'll, I've been thinking a lot about this one, looking at a business opportunity around it, is that, so if you have these cattle that need this soy byproduct in order to eat, farmers are you know in a buying frenzy to acquire now. They're in a buying frenzy to acquire right now, so there's a huge run on that. And at the same time, there's been a demand shock because of restaurants, and also there's a demand shock at, even though you can't get, there's not a lot of beef choices at the local grocery store. You walk in, there's not that much. So it's, it would seem like there would be, there's plenty of demand for it, but most of the meat is processed at these central facilities. The demand for beef from the rancher's perspective is not a consumer who wants to eat it's meat. It's processing. It's a processing plant, which oh, they are, some of them are shut down. Because their workers are getting sick and this and that. What those processing plants are willing to pay to a rancher for their cows has gone from like $1.20 a pound to $0.60 cents a pound. At the same time, those ranchers are struggling to try and buy food supply for those cattle that's gone away. This is a local U.S. system that's even complex and it's going to cause problems. So it's going to cause dislocations. So your opportunity as an entrepreneur is how you can smooth out those dislocations. How you can uh, essentially make sure that the market functions well, that the consumers are getting what they want while you know the producers can get what they need in order to make things work. On the longer time frame, to what you're saying is that you know you're talking about more localized uh, production, right? Your friend has grass-fed, pasture-raised beef 
that becomes maybe more of the norm than the large feedlot soybean, soy cake, you know, feeding process and whatnot. What happens, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but I believe what happens is then that generally results in overall less beef. It's better beef, I think, but it becomes less beef and that actually drives up it's a scarcity issue, right? So beef becomes from this, you know, mass produced thing to, I guess, comparatively uh, more scarce than it was before, which then ultimately will make it more expensive down the line. One other long-term trend is we've seen deflation in asset and certain prices, like um, electronics prices go down. You know, we've seen that over time and food prices actually have gone down incredibly. I mean, the amount, the percentage of budget that an American family would pay in the forties for their food, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like 20% of their budget went for food. And now it's like 5%. So food is actually incredibly inexpensive proportional to like all times in human existence. It's very, very cheap because of these efficient systems. So food prices are bound to go up. They're bound to go up because right. of this. If people are spending more money on food, they're spending less money on other things. And so what are those things that you should be focusing on? And I'm not saying you have all the answers. I'm just saying that as an entrepreneur, you need to start thinking about, you know, what are the needs? What are, where are people are going to be spending their money in the new normal? I think, for instance, I think real estate prices are going to go down. I think there's going to be substantial deflation in, in housing prices and rental rates. Over time, I just think that almost has to happen. Housing is a huge part of everyone's budget. And, you know, as of today, I mean, there was another 6.6 million people who hit the unemployment rolls today. So we're up to like 17 million in the last three weeks. They aren't going to be able to pay their rents. I think rental prices are going to go down. Is it because they can't pay their rents or is it because people aren't buying houses or instead renting. I think all of those things together, I think basically, because okay. I think incomes are likely, average incomes are likely to go down in a depressive environment like this, average incomes are gonna go down. Some of that's gonna be good in unemployment driven and others is going to be because the demand for goods goes down in most cases as consumption patterns change, which then you know causes less opportunity for income for people. So there's like a, an adjustment period. In real estate, there's more room in real estate, honestly, than anywhere else where you know asset prices have gone up tremendously there above the bubble highs of 2006 in real estate prices. If you look at real estate, you know, going back to the 1800s, it's incredibly expensive. I mean, like, you know, as a, as a proportion of GDP, it's just an income, so it makes no sense. That'll probably go down, it'll probably have to go down over time, you know, it'll adjust downward. But I also think that, you know, as those consumption patterns change, I think a lot of the things that we pursued as business opportunities just don't work anymore. So I have a lot of friends who did these uh, these Amazon businesses, essentially, where they would design some products, they would and have them manufactured at low cost in China, and they would sell them on Amazon. They call it an FBA, Fulfilled by Amazon Businesses. And, you know, a lot of people made a lot of money in these businesses, and they were really good. And they gave, gave consumers a lot of interesting choices. Supply chains are, you know, can't be outsourced by these entrepreneurs in the same way that they used to be. So the tooling and manufacturing of these unique goods is going to be more difficult. So these niche brands essentially are, are tougher to produce than they have been. It's more of a trend back to these bigger brands. And, and the consumer choices, I guess, the consumer preferences, again, I think one of the biggest things I think that I think people have not gotten from this whole thing is I said, you know, when people go through something that's traumatic like this, it was obviously it was going to be traumatic a while ago. They don't consume in, this, in the same way. They don't think, you know, I really need a new iPhone this year. You know, and I mean, our economy requires us, requires 35 million people a year to buy a new iPhone, even though they're the ones just fine, but no one needs it. And so how many things like that are there? And I think that people's realization of that is just going to grow and people are going to just go, yeah, that's really not important. These things are more important to us. And so things around those weird consumer preference choices, the, these choices of, you know, of people feeling like they had enough money and we're going to have even more money in the future. You know, those get hedged a bit. And so those, those new consumer brands on the edges, 
these high margin products that you can make on, you know, uh, for these, a lot of small businesses. I just don't think those exist anymore. I think they're going to go away. You're thinking that the, it becomes more of a focus on, this has a loaded term, but I'm going to say staples. I guess maybe basics is another way because staples is like an economic term, but basics like, like needs. People's ability to meet their needs are a real issue at this moment. I don't know if you've seen some of these three mile long car lines at food banks. Yeah. Like if people go, well, there's not a food problem. Like there's a problem here. It's not just food supply issues, but it's like the economic consequences. People who've never been going to a food bank in their entire life are lining up for hours to get food. There's a natural need to focus on needs over preferences. Like that's of course true. But also it's the, the psychological effect of not being certain that your income is going to be higher next year. As soon as that changes, our entire economy is built on confidence. And if you're not confident that tomorrow will be better than today, you're going to act totally differently. You're going to forego all kinds of things and you won't even feel like you're sacrificing to do it. You'll just feel like, well, of course I don't want that. Who would do that? That's stupid. Imagine, for instance, if this thing is gone tomorrow, pandemic gone tomorrow, there's a cure, instantly, everybody's instantly cured by you know calling some 1-800 number. Are you going to book that trip to Jamaica? You've been holding off for a while? Going to go on a cruise? I mean, are you going to even, do you even really want to travel far from home? Really? It's weird what these things do to people's psyche and how it, it changes their consumption patterns over a long time. That kind of brings up two different thoughts that I was wondering about, because we're talking about how to prepare for the new normal. And, and obviously we don't, there's no like single blueprint we can just lay out right now, but it's just more, we're more talking about the trends and the areas where your mind should be focusing on, right? And one has been this idea of, again, I'll call it luxuries versus basics. And now the, you know, what was termed a luxury before that bucket becomes much wider in the future because what we would consider to be whatever, easy disposable income will start to edge into the luxury category, right? Things that you could easily not spend money on, right? I call that mass market luxury. Okay. Specifically iPhones as mass market luxury. Luxury versus basic. So if you're an entrepreneur, if you're running a business, where's your base? You know, Where is that and how do you kind of adjust to meet a new line? But the other thing I wanted to ask, and this kind of speaks to the supply chain component, is what are you selling? Products versus service. Does that come into play here? Entrepreneurs often sell services first because the, it's the hustle, you know, to reduce the friction within certain components of a like supply chain or a market is where they can start to build something. And then ultimately they end up selling products. I mean, you look at it like Amazon, for instance, Amazon was a service, started as a service. All they're doing is fulfilling other people getting what they want and they move into their own products over time, but they start off as a service. So many times businesses start off as services and expand into products themselves. So I still think the entrepreneurial hustle is usually going to be around a service in some way, most often. I mean, I see some that have some, you know, whatever was being product. And you mentioned your Amazon, fulfilled by Amazon folks before. Those were products they would have made elsewhere and then service through Amazon. But they didn't make the product. They were a service for having a, a new tool made for like, a friend of mine has this grilling company, you know, and he makes all kinds of grill tools. He doesn't actually make any of the tools. They're all made in outsourced manufacturing facilities. Is he paying for the tools to be made? Uh, yeah. It's, still, it's, it's much more like a service still, it feels like, because he gives them, basically has them make it. They have all the capital costs of the manufacturing of it. Then he uses Amazon's infrastructure to sell it on. He's still acting much more like a service than he is actually as a manufacturer or producer of goods. Okay. He doesn't own any IP around them. I, anybody else okay. can copy the, you copy the product. He might be copying someone else's product already. I don't really know. But you see what I'm saying is that there are some that have more relying on people to eventually pay you money to receive a product, however you want to break down the between the two steps there. 
versus charging for a service, which is different. So let me explain this a little bit further because I, you're right. There's a line between those two where you're not sure what, which one you're doing. But like the business that I'm looking into right now is with this rancher. He has a secure supply of cattle. He has a relationship with a USDA butcher who has excess capacity. It's remotely located. It's in the mountains. He currently delivers some food direct to consumers. Customers he's built up over you know long time from farmers markets. So my idea is with him essentially to create a new business that would essentially guarantee food supply to families, a certain amount of food, you know, over a certain period of time, no matter what, like, you know, your family wouldn't go hungry unless his family was starving. You know what I mean? It's like that kind of thing. You want to make sure that like the rancher, you know where it's coming from. This dude is making sure and personally make sure there's food at your door on Monday morning. My approach to that is really, I see it as a service. The part of it that, I, you know, is, is by essentially offering a guarantee and food security around certain products to individuals where they're locally sourced and understood. But ultimately, it is selling a product, but where the value I think really is, is in the guarantee of it and the sourcing understanding of it. That's really the, where I see the service. Because a lot of times the value that an entrepreneur can really add to something is around the way that the, the value proposition around the product is structured. And usually that has almost a service component to it, you know, because beef is beef, but a secure supply of beef, even if the stores are empty, is something different than it's not beef. We're talking about food because it's, it's kind of the thing that everyone, it's on everyone's mind right now. You go to the stores, you see the empty shelves. Okay, how do I still get the same stuff without having to get it from the store? Where else do I go, right? And you're talking about your beef guy. You know, I've got like three different delivery services that I set up like weeks ago, and I haven't had a problem really since. But um, the question is, do I keep those in a year from now? Or do I cancel them and go back to go into the store? I don't have the answer to that question, but it's very likely that I might keep them. I mean, that when you have major habits being reformed, there's an opportunity for you as to have a really a significant impact as an entrepreneur on the way that things are done in the future. You know, there really is. I want to say one other thing, idea that I think is important is that the way that an entrepreneur actually builds something, even entrepreneurs don't often understand this. It's not like the way that, that you might study in an MBA course. An MBA course looks at things from the top down. You know, they look at, well, here's the mac, here's these macro trends. So we're going to get this much capital. We're going to buy a factory and then we're going to do these different things. You know, they're like, they look at it from the top down. While these trends, the idea of them is it gives you a way to understand the way the future might look. And the trends are really useful to, under, they're critical to understand in order to make reasonable choices about the future. The way as an entrepreneur, you actually can create something within that framework of trends is using something called effectual reasoning. So all that is, is it's looking around you for the resources that you actually have on hand. Like, what do you actually have? And what can you actually do with those resources? And doing that thing, the thing that you can do with the resources you have. After you've done that, you will have different resources. There'll be different things that you can do. So things naturally organically evolve into other things. When I talked about Amazon, and I said they were just a service, you know, bookseller, whatever. There wasn't anything more that Bezos could really, really imagine at that early stage what they would do. He knew that he couldn't imagine what they could do. He knew that, but he didn't know what else they could do. So he first just did that one thing, you know, that he could imagine doing. And then it, over there expanded. So for me, when I'm saying, looking at this food problem, I go, well, you know, I know a guy who does this. So maybe I could figure something out with him. I know how to, you know, build a, have a, a, a website and how e-commerce works. And you know, I understand marketing a little bit. So I can combine these things and this is something that I can do. And could it turn, and I'm just like, could you build that business with just a hundred customers? Yeah, probably. Is it even worth doing if you could only have a hundred customers? 
I mean, symbolically maybe, but otherwise, you know, financially, no. But the idea is that you look around with and do see what resources you have. You marshal those resources to address a problem that you can see and can effectively challenge or tackle. And then after you do that, the next step becomes more obvious. So it's not top down, it's bottom up. You start doing something that you can do now and look for the opportunities to do something more later. Right. Pretty simple, but I, I'm, but no <laughs> MBA gets this. I don't know why they this the top down. They think the command and control. You just decide. You know, you somehow wish resources into existence. I guess I don't know. I just I guess this one last question here is that you know we we're seeing a lot of pivoting taking place by existing companies now to stick with the food trend. You know, you got a lot of restaurants that are pivoting to delivery and pickup and things like that. It feels a lot very short term survival focused than long term structural change to their businesses. For companies that are in business now that are doing some kind of pivots, how do they, maybe we can just talk a little bit about how they view what their current pivot is from a short-term survival move to a long-term lasting strategy. Yeah, I'll give you a second one is uh, distilleries that are basically, that are shifting their production to produce hand sanitizer versus spirits, right? That is effectual reasoning in action. Like they don't really know where it could go, but they know they have these resources available and that they can adjust to the environment in the short term. For restaurants in particular, it's a catastrophic outcome for most restaurants. We had too many restaurants. It's wonderful for, as a consumer, the choice that you have, but restaurant business is the hardest business in the country to do because the margins are thin, because there's so many, so many competitors there. I mean, obviously, if you can't serve customers in-house, then you really have no choice but to try and you know change your approach. You know, Well, the product you know how to make already is food, and you, you, know, you do, hopefully, you have a relationship directly with some customers already. You know, people who never collected their customer names or emails when they when they're coming in all the time regret it now. You know, because they could reach out to those customers and offer them something. But and those who did are in a better position because they were they were thinking a little bit ahead about owning their customer. But this is essentially just effectual reasoning in action. They don't know how it can necessarily end up, but this is the thing that they can do now, and it will lead to other things. You know, the founder of Uber, his new business is a cloud kitchen business, which he started as soon as he was ousted from Uber. You know, he was way ahead of the curve, it seems, you know, in understanding this. And so, you know, cloud kitchens, you don't need the retail face. You can use a warehouse facility essentially instead, you know, the central production or whatever of food. And so you could have some strong restaurants with strong brands and strong relationships with customers pivot to that over the long term and create experiences for people at home that are unique. So not just supplying the commodity of food. I remember seeing some ad from, a, I think it was a barbecue place that said uh, something about having like a, a home picnic. You know, so they positioned like the takeout or the delivery of the food as a home picnic and they're delivering it a little bit differently so that, you know, it's a like the same food, of course, but they're delivering it a little bit differently under that idea. And it puts a different idea in the consumer's mind and they go, yeah, that sounds good. Let's make a picnic of it. I think maybe that what you're saying with the effectual reasoning component to the pivot thing is that for anyone who currently is taking mitigation steps, let's call them, or what they're considering at least as short-term mitigation steps to not think of them as merely short-term mitigation steps, but do them to survive right now. But do it with a longer term, you know, mindset. Because we get into that lock-in. You know, lock-in's a technical term. Like, you know, there's certain things that we just all use because it's what everyone else uses. And even though there might be better things, it's too hard to switch to that new thing than to just stick with the status quo. Something like this pandemic blows a lot of lock-ins up, right? It changes everything. So it gives you that opportunity to think differently about how do you approach all of this stuff. So I like the idea of like, yeah, you, ha you had a good idea to kind of fix your short-term problem. Don't be so myopic that you're only looking at it as a short term. And then when it's over, it goes back to normal. Look at the pivot as potentially the new normal. The whole thing you started this with, what does back to normal mean? 
Back to normal is where people are not worried about having any contact with anybody, you know, where everyone has to be isolated in their home by legal mandate. Back to normal is basically that by law, we get to come out of our homes. I think, you know, I think that's, you can count on that part being back to normal at some point. The rest of it is all going to be different. The most significant difference is two specific things, I think. Number one, the employment situation is going to be very different. There's going to be a big dislocation for um, an extended period of time with employment, and that's going to cause downward pressure in incomes and um, less frivolous choices in spending on average. I think that is the number one thing that people are going to have to contend with. The other thing that uh, you know people are going to have to con- contend with for sure is the idea that this localization trend. I just think that's going to be bigger and bigger as people start to see it's just not the businesses will decide it's not worth the business risk for them to have made the choices they made. So they'll make adjustments and consumers will also likewise make those choices where they can. You know, it's a lower risk, it's a lower risk. And eat less meat. So there you go. <laughs> not me, I would eat more. <laughs> All right, great. Well, this is fascinating. Thank you, I uh, appreciate it. My pleasure. It's fun to talk about this stuff. We'll see if we're right about any of it in a, a couple months. Yeah, we'll find out. Yeah. All right, thanks, Anthony. Right. Yep. You've been listening to the Smith Sense Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his blog at smithsense.com, where you can also read the show notes, leave questions, and join the discussion. If you like what you've been hearing, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And sharing it with friends would go a long way. A quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for the show notes, to our engineer Jason Sanderson, and to the wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. I'm Anthony Bruno, and we've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good week.